see you all uh, here worshiping with us as well as those uh, worshiping uh, virtually from home. Uh, if you're visiting us uh, with us for the first time, my name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and we are in our second week in our study in the latter half or the, towards the end of the book of Revelations. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. And for those of us who are able, please stand as an act of worship for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 19, and I'll be reading from verse 11 to verse 21. This is God's Word that I pray will encourage and bless you here this morning. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, his name, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the throne and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image." These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And this is God's word for us today. Please take your seats. Well, I almost uh, entitled this message um, in the spirit of Marvel Avengers, the endgame, uh, but I decided to go with the last battle, which is typical in most of the commentaries that you read. But either way, it captures the same point. This is a, a vision, because remember, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. But you have a vision of the last battle, the end game of both biblical history, but also just human history. And it is similar to Marvel. Now, I'm assuming most of you saw Avengers, the end game. It's one of my most favorite movies, but it's the last cosmic battle between good and evil. And you have a savior in Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr. He's Iron Man, and he puts on the Infinity Stones at the end, and he saves the world, but he gives his life in the meantime, and he's supposed to be like the Jesus figure. And some read so much into it that he's, they, they say when he, when he snapped his fingers, he saw his Tony Stark's human face, but he was still wearing the armor of Iron Man, so you can see that he was both man and God, which represents Jesus as the Savior of the world. I don't know about that. But at the same time, it does give a sense in a Hollywood fashion of what we have in these verses today. This passage breaks up nicely into two sections, and it breaks up by the way the author John sees things, because he begins in verse 11, he saw heaven opened up. And then in verse 17, he saw an angel in the sun. And those two sections, the way that John sees these visions, break out the passage. And those are the two points for today. In verse 11, when he says, he saw heaven opened up, 
we see that he gives us a clear description of who Jesus is. And then when you go down to verse 17, he saw an angel in the sun, then he gives another detailed description of the destruction of those who are rebelling and reject Jesus Christ. And so we'll take a look at this. First, a description of the Savior, and then the destruction of the enemy. Verse 11 and verse 17. So the description of the Savior, which kicks off and keys off in verse 11, we have a description of our King, our Savior, our Messiah. This is Jesus. And one of the reasons that John, the author, wants to give such a powerful description of Jesus is because it implies for people today to take a moment and to rest and just look, to see, to soak in and to observe and to see all the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. Before you do anything, you just look at who Jesus is for all your grace and love in your life. Because when you look at Jesus, he's so powerful, and by the truth of his spirit, you become like Jesus. You see Jesus, and you want to follow him. You'll be thankful for him. You'll worship him. You'll love him, and you'll become like him. Now, the Apostle Paul writes something similar about this more directly in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and he says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that's what we call sanctification growth, one degree to the other. But really, Paul says it very clearly. We see the glory of the Lord, and we become like this. So basically, seeing is becoming. And that's what John wants us to understand here. He's giving us the glory of the Lord, a clear description of Jesus. He wants to see him and be drawn into the experience of all the glory and power of who Christ is. Now, several years ago, pre-COVID, I went to, I think it was LACMA, a museum of modern art, one of the museums in LA, and I went with somebody who was very knowledgeable about modern art, and so there's a display and an exhibit of Mark Rothko, and I have a couple of like his paintings, obviously not the original ones, but we put them up in our living room. And so I learned a little bit about his work, and basically, if you know his work, there are large paintings with strong colors, and it just looks like Impressionism, and there's just a big rectangle of very specific colors. A lot of times it's yellow, orange, red, sort of black. And the reason is because when you look at his work, you're supposed to experience it. You stand before the painting with the colors and let it immerse yourself into your experience. So we have red ones in our living room that's supposed to convey a sense of judgment, of fire, a sense of urgency, panic, and you're supposed to immerse yourself into that experience. I didn't realize that when I first bought the paintings for the living room, but that's, that's the idea of a Rothko. And that's what John's trying to tell us. Immerse yourself into the description that I'm about to give you. Now, Jesus want, John wants us to linger in the picture and description of him, to dwell in Jesus, to see every aspect of who Christ is our great and perfect judge, our divine warrior. The same sense that you go to the Grand Canyon, you stand on the edge, and you breathe in the experience. Or for those of you who went to the Van Gogh Immersive, you sit there, and it is a digital paradise with music. You immerse yourself into that world and reality. And that's what we have here. And that's what John wants us to understand, to feel and to know and to see who Jesus is with perfect clarity as our divine warrior, our great judge, and our righteous king. Now, one pastor by the name of David Strain, you know, he, he sort of summarizes that same point. And what he conveys, and I summarize some of his thoughts, is that John doesn't want us to focus too quickly on the unfolding plan of God. He lingers first on the one sitting on the great white horse. 
Jesus Christ, the triumphant warrior king. He dwells on each component of who this king is in this vision so that we could taste and savor every detail. For John, what's more important than understanding what Christ is doing is first knowing who Christ is, Christ himself. Everything flows from knowing Jesus and who he is. True comfort, in other words, consolation, peace, and security for a suffering church, for John means we are rooted in who Jesus Christ is first. And so that's why we're going to try to take uh, you know, sort of a survey of the description of Jesus. We're going to look at various characteristics. Uh, we won't dwell on any characteristic too much, but I pray that you could soak yourself into this so that you could be comforted, have a sense of hope and security. And the first description that we see of Jesus that hopefully we can immerse ourselves in is verse 11, and we see Jesus on white horses. Now, that's important because some say the color white means righteous judgment, but white horses in the Roman world were ridden by generals and conquerors. They came on white horses to defeat the army. Jesus on a white horse shows himself to be the true and absolute king and conqueror. He surpasses any Roman king, any Parthian king. And he's also described as faithful and true because he judges with righteousness. He's perfect and he's trustworthy. So this judgment, this war, that's really gruesome when we get to the second point. It's really the expression of someone who's faithful and true. Righteous, he judges perfectly. And then in verse 12, he has eyes like blazing fire, which means that he sees with glaring penetration. He penetrates with perfect judgment, and that judgment is pure. He sees into your heart. That fire is going to judge your good deeds and your bad deeds. He'll see your motivations. He sees what's really in your thinking because he watches you even today with blazing fire. And then it's described in verse 12 again, there's many diadems or many crowns. And what that means for us, friends, is that Jesus has absolute perfect authority because there are descriptions of different crowns. And, you know, the main enemy is going to be the dragon. He has his own sort of protege, which is going to be the beast. And in previous chapters, it says that the dragon has seven crowns, which is supposed to be perfect authority, but it's counterfeit authority. And then you have a beast who has 10 crowns, which is supposed to be even more authority, but Jesus is described as having many crowns. So you go from seven to 10 to many. The point is John is saying there are counterfeit authorities out there. Jesus is absolute. He surpasses this. He doesn't have seven. He doesn't have 10. He has many, a plethora. He has a bunch of different crowns. His authority surpasses anything this world has to offer. Now, and this is an interesting point that I studied and read about. In chapter 4, verse 10 to 11, it talks about human crowns. And it says in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 to 11, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So you have the 24 elders, which represents the church. They throw their crowns as they bow down before Jesus. Why is that so important? Well, one commentator says this. The many crowns that Jesus wears in, Ro in Revelation 19 are part of the crowns that the worldly kings threw down in Revelation 4. Jesus took on human crowns and put it on his head. The implication is this. Jesus, just as a king of the nations, he's a king of your life. Every one of you has a certain authority. Every one of you has a metaphorical crown over your life, your career, your school, your love life, your thoughts, your recreation. Every one of you has agency. 
you have an ability to determine and make decisions. And in some sense, what this passage is telling us, you lay down your crowns, Jesus puts that on his own head because he rules not just the universe or the nations, he rules your home and your relationships and your family and your friends. He rules all of that. Paul Tripp once described sin, the essence of sin is simply wanting to be little kings and queens over our little kingdoms. That's the essence of sin. But we lay down our crowns and say, yes, we have an ability to choose, but God is the one who is the king over our lives because he puts our crowns onto himself to say, I am the true and absolute king. And because he's that absolute king, it flows into his name, and it says the name that no one knows. But that's confusing because we know his name. His name is Jesus. And even in the passage, you roll down to verse 16, it says his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what does it mean that he's saying, I have a name that no one knows? It means at least this, because in the Old Testament, knowing someone's name also conveys that you have control over them. So if you name someone, that's why you have control and authority over them. That's why back in Genesis, when Adam had to name all the animals and all the birds and all the fish, he named all them because mankind had dominion and authority over creation. He named them, so therefore he had control over them. What Jesus is saying here is that no one can name me because no one can control me. No one has authority over me. I have a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but in some sense, no one knows my name. He's saying, you can't control me. I have divine, ultimate authority. I'm not your maid. I'm not your puppet. I'm not someone you can manipulate. I'm the one who loves you as a sovereign, dying king. And then in verse 13, which is really fascinating, they describe his wardrobe because I've said this before. Revelation cares a lot about your clothes. And it says that Jesus' clothes is, is, a robe, is a robe dipped in blood. Now, think about this with me for a second. You know, some commentators say the reason that Jesus' clothes are already bloodshed is because he's the divine warrior. He went into battle. I like the other interpretation because in the description that I've given you, Jesus hasn't fought yet. He hasn't executed the divine battle. So whatever blood is on Jesus' robes can't be from the enemies because he didn't fight yet. So whose blood is this? There's blood on his robe before he comes to the final battle. His robe is stained before he comes to the last cosmic endgame. The question is, whose blood is it? From the whole book of Revelation, I think, and also from the New Testament, I think there's only one answer. The blood on his robe is his own blood. His robe, both a priest's robe, a king's robe, is stained with Jesus' own blood. Daryl Johnson has stated it this way. The great truth we must never lose sight of is that Jesus Christ conquers and reigns not because he will win a battle yet to be fought, but because he has already triumphed by the blood of the cross, by giving his life. He shed his own blood, and he's already triumphant. The war and the battle has already been done. This is just an execution, an expression of that victory. Jesus comes with blazing eyes as a righteous judge, as a conqueror on a white horse, and he has blood-stained clothes because it shows his sacrifice and his love on the cross was already the decisive victory for all that we are going to experience in injustice and evil in this world. And that is our future. That is our savior. That is our hope. This triumphant king will rule with swords of his mouth. He is the word of God, and by that truth, he's going to judge the nations. That's the Jesus who loves us where we, like a Rothko painting, immerse ourselves into this because we have safety, we have security. This is our destiny as a church of Jesus Christ. 
the blood-stained, righteous king who judges perfectly, who takes your crowns and puts it on his head. That's the description of Jesus. That's who we follow. And because we have such a wonderful description of Jesus, then it shows us, really, the destruction of the enemies. Now, one thing before we get into the destruction is to say this. These are one of the harder passages to really talk about with non-Christians and atheists and skeptics because it looks so judgmental, it looks exclusive, it looks just really harsh. You know, I thought Jesus was supposed to be meek and gentle and all about love, but he's not just about gentleness and meekness. There's a side of him that says the reason he can love is because he's holy and he's righteous. And this judgment shows this. And so let's take a look at this in this sort of horrific and gruesome picture that shows the reality of what it looks like to reject Christ. And this is what we see. First of all, in light of last week's passage, there are two dinners. There are two dinner parties, two feasts, two suppers. And for Christians, last week, there's going to be a wedding supper of the Lamb. There's a wedding celebration. There's going to be a joy and a party that you can never experience on this side of glory here on earth. But there's a second dinner, and they call it the Great Supper of God, which is a perfect judgment for those who are not Christian and who reject God, who live in rebellion and want to remain little kings and queens. There's a meal in heaven, and it's contrasted with a meal in destruction. This meal of destruction is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 39, where God's curse is on the wicked. And in Ezekiel 39, it shows that not only is there going to be judgment and death, but there's also going to be judgment on the corpses, and there's birds eating the dead bodies. And that's where we see the fulfillment of that in Revelation 19. It says there, there's no honorable burial, but only destruction. So in verses 17c to 18, this is what it describes. It says, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now you look at this description, and it's a great supper of God, but you can see that there are birds that are coming here, and they're eating the flesh. The people are already dead. So the reason they're eating the flesh is to say, God's judgment is thorough. It is through and through. It is complete. And what's interesting to note is this. In verse 18, no achievements or status can save you. Because look at what gets eaten in their flesh. They're kings, which are very powerful people. They're captains, which also have power. Then you have they eat the flesh of mighty men, which means that the mighty men are also strong. Flesh of horses and riders. Horses and riders represent power and people and under, people who are under you in their kingdoms. Then you have the flesh of all men, whether you're free or slave or great and small. You know what it says there? It says no matter how powerful, no matter how smart, no matter how educated, how rich that you are, it doesn't matter if you're poor or you're rich, whoever rejects God, it's a level playing field, you're going to be judged. Kings who get judged, poor people who get judged, great people get judged, small people who get judged, Show that no matter what you do, no achievement or status can save you because in your rebellion with God, small and great, both are condemned, both are judged, and both are eaten by the birds. See, it shows you your heart here, friends, which is a little bit hard-pressing. Now, the, the easiest application is this. If you're not a Christian here today, this is, as gently as I could say, your future. And there's, a, there's time to accept Jesus. The harder part is going to be for those of us who've been coming to church for a long time, but you're just nominal. 
There's no real relationship. You like the idea of Christianity, but not the sacrifice and responsibilities of Christianity. And those are nominal Christians, which means you're only Christian by name, but you're not really Christian or saved. I don't know who you are. I can't peer into your heart. I just know every church has those people. And if you're nominal, then it's a little bit dangerous because you think you're Christian, but in reality, the Bible should show you that you may not be, and this is also your future. And for Christians, it also is another like, gentle reminder of our sin that we struggle with because it says kings and captains and mighty men, their flesh will be eaten. It shows us in those verses, verse 18, a little bit about our own hearts. Now, we talked about this already, to want to be kings and queens of our little kingdoms, to decide for ourselves what we want, what we need, to judge other people as if we're sovereign in that one moment in which we really sin. You know, if you think about the essence of sin, back in Genesis, God created the world, he put Adam in perfection, and he said, Adam, this is all for you, a paradise. Only one rule. Don't eat this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what happened? Adam ate that tree, and then sin and brokenness entered into the world. The essence of that sin of eating the tree is not because you broke your dietary habits. It's because the tree of knowledge of good and evil basically represented being like God, God-like. Adam was like, I don't want to submit to the great king. I want to be king. I don't want to worship God. I want to be God. So he took a bite of that tree because he wanted to make decisions for himself. That's why the essence of sin is going to be autonomy, to be autonomous, which comes from the Latin, autonomos. Nomos is law, auto is to yourself. You want to be a law unto yourself, and that's what Adam did. So when you see a judgment in verse 18 that says, kings will be judged and mighty men will be judged, it reveals even for our hearts that there is sin, that at the end of the day, we're always trying to be little kings and queens of our lives, to be autonomos, a law unto ourselves. And if you are, those are things that you can repent of, be forgiven of, and Jesus will be recognized as a true gate king. Now, moving along, when you look at this destruction, what gives us a level of hope is this. In verses 19 to 20, we see that there's such a decisive victory. Now, this is in, it's not even a competition. It was so easy for God. Read with me verse 19 first. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth where their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his enemy. And then in verse 20, just in the beginning, it just says, and the beast was captured. You know, okay, so I'm going to go back to Marvel, the end game. You've seen the last battle. You gather all the armies of the universe, all the spaceships, all these weird creatures that come and they fly and they have the you know, big growling animal and beast that comes in. You gather all of this. And the only difference is that in this victory, verse 20, and then they were captured. It's almost like the greatest army the greatest power that you ever seen that's trying to defeat Jesus, and Jesus said, this is no problem. It's like, they're defeated. They're captured. That's how decisive, that's how, that, that's how powerful Jesus is. You know, it's almost sort of a bad analogy, but if you ever watch MMA or UFC, it's almost like the, the bell rings and the two fighters come into the middle, and it's like a half-second knockout, and the guy's just completely knocked out. That's basically what we have here. The greatest army brought together. Verse 20. And then the beast was captured really quick. No problem. Barely broke a sweat for Jesus Christ. That's the power of Jesus winning. Now, Vern Poitras, I mentioned him last week. He, he wrote a, a small commentary. I recommend it to anyone. He was a New Testament professor, Dr. Poitras. And I remember this because that's where I went to seminary, and I had him for class. 
And he was telling this story, and he writes about it in his book, where there's a bunch of students at Westminster Theological Seminary. They're playing basketball on campus. And while they're playing ball, they notice the janitor, who everybody knew because it was a small community. They noticed the janitor. He was reading in his Bible. And then they stopped by, and they're encouraged and say, hey, what are you reading? I'm reading the book of Revelation. And then these students, you know, because a lot of times seminary students are all cocky. You know, you think you know everything about theology when you first go to seminary. So they're like, oh, man, we should help this guy. You know, he doesn't have a theological education. We should, Revelation is really hard. And so they're like, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, I do. Well, what's the point? And the guy, the janitor said, Jesus wins. And the student's like, walked away, according to Poitras, and says he understands the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. Remember I said last week, the end times for those in Jesus Christ, for the church, is basically you will win because Jesus wins. They will lose. Hang in there because that's the description of Jesus. Hang in there. That's the decisive victory. Verse 20, easy victory for him. Doesn't really break a sweat. That's the point. And the battle, as we come to a close, between God and Satan, Jesus and the beast, obviously also represents the communities of each champion. So dragon and the beast represent those who reject Jesus. The divine warrior represents the church of Jesus Christ. So whoever wins with their champion also brings victory to the community. That's what we call the nature of the covenant in the Bible. Jesus and the church, Satan and those who rebel. The destiny of each champion determines the destiny of community. The destiny of the community rests in the victory of his champion. One way to kind of see the fulfillment of this sort of champion battle and the two opposing nations and teams really cheering on their respective champions goes back to a well-known passage in Christianity in 1 Samuel 17. It's a story called David and Goliath. Have you heard of that story? David and Goliath. It's basically an Old Testament picture of what we see here in Revelation 19, but 19 shows us the fulfillment of it, the cosmic nature of it, the finality of it. But the same tension in battle, spiritual warfare, is throughout the Bible, and one of the greatest stories is going to be David and Goliath. You have two nations. You have the Philistines with Goliath, then you have the church, the Israelites, eventually with small little dinky little David. And they're two champions, this huge Goliath, this little David, they represent the destinies of the Philistines who reject God, and you have the Israelites who are trying to be faithful to God. Now, if you ever read this story, it's a wonderful story that seems almost supernatural, but it's historical. Now, in that story, Goliath is introduced to us in a way that's supposed to make the reader scared. He's six cubits in a span. Do you know how tall that is? Nine feet, six inches. That's huge. That's bigger than Andre the Giant. From head to toe, he's covered in 130 pounds of armor, and his hand holds a spear with a 16-pound head. Goliath is a monster. Now, I know I'm dating myself, but if you ever watch WWE, there's this guy named Hulk Hogan. He was like, he was the man, and he always said, I have the largest arms in the world. But he doesn't hold anything to Goliath. His biceps were bigger than the average man's torso. And the purpose of this was to instill a sense of fear, a sense of awe to his enemy, which is going to be the Israelites. 
In the history of warfare and intimidation, there are few figures that are more impressive than the Goliath of Goth. Now here's the point, friends. The presentation of Goliath can't be understood as Christians unless you understood that the spiritual reality is that Goliath represented Israel's idol. Because Israel always looked at worldly things. They always wanted power and money, prestige, and they kept crying for a king. Give us a king who's tall and handsome and strong. We wanted somebody who's savvy and protective and someone who's really big and someone who's going to take us and reinstill Israel as a dominant nation. And so what did God give him? They gave him Saul. And Saul was pretty good. He was about a foot taller than anyone else. But Saul, compared to Goliath, was really a puny man. And it's really trying to reveal the idolatry and the trust of the Israelites. If you trust in worldly power, if you trust in worldly strength, if you trust in worldly impressions and aesthetics and appearances, then you have an idol in which you're not going to trust of the God of Israel. And that's why they say, you have a good person like Saul. I gave him to you. I'm going to show you a greater idol in Goliath. And he says, can you really see that the true king here is not going to be your Saul? And it's not going to be Goliath. It's going to be me. That's the whole point. Goliath was bigger than Saul. Israel needed to learn a profound lesson. They were absolutely helpless before Goliath. The lesson is basically this that we see in Revelation 19. You can't win this battle. Only Jesus can. He has to win it for you. And so this is the application of it. You, all, you probably know the story. So they get uh, David. He has a faith that is unmatched by his brothers. And he says, how can they say something like that to the God of Israel? So they bring David up into Goliath, and he has five stones. And he throws these stones, and he defeats Goliath. Now, this is what you don't want to do. And by the way, I always ask this when we interview people, uh, when I was on the examination committee for a presbytery, and I say, no, tell me about David and Goliath. What's the main point? How does it show me Jesus? I ask people on staff, when we hire them, I ask them when they're getting ordained, and I want to see how they understood David and Goliath. And the worst way to understand it is once where I heard it this way. There's five stones. So David was able to defeat Goliath because first he took the stone of truth, and then he threw it. And then he took the stone of love, and then he threw it. And then he took the stone of hope, and then he threw it. And that's a completely man-made, moralistic approach because it's saying, basically, which most of the church understands this to be in our nation, if you could trust and love and have hope, then by your own strength and resources, you can defeat the Goliaths of your lives. If you're in financial distress, just believe and God will give you riches. If someone's sick, just believe, have more faith, and then God will give you riches. You know what that is? A moralistic, therapeutic health and wealth gospel. That's not really the point. The point is going to be this. Israel had idols. They wanted somebody handsome and big and beautiful. God gave them a little Goliath, and God used little David. God used David to defeat Goliaths. And David pointed towards a true and better David. David pointed towards a true and climactic David, a greater warrior than David. His name is Jesus Christ, which we just looked at in the description here. The point isn't to say by the moralistic efforts of your life, you could conquer anything that the life throws at you and the Goliaths that you deal with. The point is this. Jesus is a true and great divine warrior who has already conquered the greatest Goliath in your life, Satan and your very own sin. That's why we have hope. Jesus is that true David. He is that true champion. He has already defeated the greatest Goliath in your life, 
And now you're living on this side of glory. We're all living because he's our champion. We're living in victory. Now there's sin and you have to still deal with that and be empathetic and that's honest and that's true. But we're living as a conquering people, a loving and gracious people of victory. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Giving you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Ephesians 1. And I know that's really hard to understand because many of us at church are struggling just as Elder Daniel had prayed. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt and doesn't have struggle and doesn't mean that there's brokenness on this side of glory and there will be a period of suffering for sure. But it's always a suffering of a people who have a conquering, winning champion, Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here. The greatest army comes after you. The greatest temptations come after you. Verse 20, and the beast was captured. That's where we live our lives. That helps us to suffer well. That gives us the power to move forward. That is our destiny. That is the people of God, and that is the Jesus whom we worship and follow and give our lives to because he's our great king. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have given us in your son. Help us to soak in and to learn and to grow in all the glory that we see in Christ, our divine warrior, our great king, our loving savior, our husband, all the various pictures that we've seen in the past two weeks given to us in the grand apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ. Help, help that truth to give us strength, hope, may allow us to confess our sins and turn to Jesus' forgiveness for forgiveness and to grow in him. May we look to him to know that he takes our little crowns and places on his head because he reigns in our lives. May we submit to his good, righteous judgment and his kingship. Lord, we thank you so much, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.